Well, good morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. The sister selected song 201. She didn't know what the message was going to be about this morning. And I think it, it began to lay a good foundation for what I wanted to share. I want to read part of the first verse. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth through all its pulses move. I have the privilege of teaching at Heritage Bible School and... I have a class there that I teach every year. It's separation and nonconformity. I love that class. I don't know all the reasons exactly why I love that class so much. Maybe it's because I've spent so much time thinking about that subject. But I love the opportunity to talk to young people about why we do the things that we do. And I know I have at least one student from that class sitting in the pews this morning. But fortunately for him, this message isn't exactly like the lesson that I have on dating and marriage. Um, it is related to that. I am currently preaching through my lessons on separation and nonconformity at Mabel. And this is one that I preached recently. The title of the message is, I Love You. What does that mean? What does it mean when you say, I love you? And the focus of this message is not particularly giving you tools to love one another. That's not really the focus of it, even though that's involved. The focus is more to understand how Christian relationships are different from non-Christian relationships. And when I say Christian, I'm not particularly referring to people who call themselves Christian. I'm referring to people who believe in Jesus. And that belief changes the way they live. First of all, I'd like to give you a little bit of a, of a foundation for where this message is coming from. There's a, there's a great threefold conflict in our world, and it, is, it, it spans all of humanity and relationships. And that is the two kingdoms, for one, truth and error, and good and evil. Everywhere you go in the world, those things are present. That conflict is present. And then, underlying that, or maybe above that, either one, out of that, we have an identity in either one or the other. Either one kingdom or the other, we have an identity. We have an identity either with truth or with what is false. We have an identity with either good or evil. And that identity is fixed. So I want you to think about the spiritual reality of, of two kingdoms and the fact that your life is either in one or it's in the other. You're not halfway in between. You're either part of one kingdom or you're part of another. 
But there's not just that fixed reality. There's also your conceptualization of your identity. So it's what you believe about your identity. It's what you believe about yourself. And how you act comes out of what you believe about yourself. So the way that you conceptualize your identity is the way that you act. So there's the possibility that you may perceive your identity to be different than what it is. And so the way that you're acting is not really true to where you are. And that's part of the reason why the name Christian, the identity Christian, doesn't always lead to lives that are changed because the identity Christian doesn't always, when someone gives themselves the identity Christian, doesn't always mean that they live as or are a Christian. But when we have a proper understanding of our identity, when we have a biblical understanding of our identity, it's transformative. To understand who we are in Christ is transformative. I'd like to push that just a little bit farther now. There's something deeper in Scripture than doing. Now, I'm not eliminating doing by saying that. But in Scripture, there is this idea of being. And God's call for us is a call to being. To be something. To do something, yes. But more than just to do something, to be something different. I can give you an example of that. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is familiar to a lot of people. It's a verse about Jesus, where Jesus says, You will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Familiar verse about wit being a witness. That verse is not a command to do. It's a command to be. You are to be witnesses. And you're going to be witnesses... Because the Spirit of God has come in and transformed your life. You're going to be something. God wants you to be His child as identity. That your identity, that you understand. He wants you to understand your identity as His child. So I want to, I want to do that to give you a foundation for the idea that separation is very central, it's very core to the way we act and the way we live in the world and the way we relate to the world. So do you believe that you will find the fullest life possible by living this book? Do you believe that? And when I say living, I'm saying living in the sense of being what this book calls you to. And then, my next question is, if that's what you believe, then how committed are you to learning to know the author of this book and to walk with him in a daily life? And there's a reason why I ask that question in relation to the idea of love. This is the Bible, right? It's made up of two books the Old Testament and the New Testament. A testament 
is a covenant. A covenant is a commitment. It's a commitment between two parties. It's binding. If you're a Christian this morning, you have entered into a commitment with God on the basis of the new covenant. So the foundation of our relationship with God is covenant. It's commitment. And we're made in God's image. And so the foundation of all of our relationships is commitment. The foundation of love, from the Christian perspective, is commitment. There are two basic components that I want to look at this morning. One is truth, the other is love. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 say this, That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So Paul's writing here in Ephesians 4, and he's talking about Brotherhood relationships within the church. He's talking about the gifts that are given to the church for the building up of the body. And in that context of these brotherhood relationships, he makes this statement about speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. There's two things I want to point out from that. First is that Christ is the ideal. That's what the church is to be growing towards. We want to be like Christ. So the church is to be moving towards being like Christ. And then the pathway to that is speaking the truth in love. Communicating truth in love is the pathway for the church to get from where they are to the ideal. So first of all, I'd like to look at truth. Why is commitment to truth so vital to relationships? Well, the story is told, I heard it a long time ago, and I believe it's a true story, and I don't remember the exact details, but I'll tell you the way that I think it was that it happened. There was a group of young men that went to a pond to go swimming, and one of the young men was out swimming in the pond, and he got in trouble. And one of his friends jumped in to go out and pull him to shore. And another friend grabs a fence post and throws it into the pond to help uh, to give them something to hang on to so that they can use it as support to float to the edge of the pond. But when he threw that fence post into the pond, he hit the young man who had gone in to help on the head, and both young men drowned. So what's the point of that story? It doesn't matter how much we want to help someone. If we don't help them in the right way, if we don't help them according to the truth, we'll actually drown them. So it doesn't matter how much you love someone and want to help them, if you don't help them according to the truth, you're not really helping them. So that's why a commitment to the truth is so important to love, to commit, to our commitment to love. There's another way that this is also true. It has to do with, it has to do with the way that, that right actions and right speech affect the way we interact with one another. So a relationship essentially 
people learning to know one another better, to know who they are. And so when, whenever you meet someone, you begin to have this reciprocal interaction with them, and you say some things to them, and they say some things to you, and you test that thing that was just said or, or done, and you say, is this safe for me to expose more of myself to continue this interaction with this person? Is that safe? And as you continue that interaction, you're continually engaging with deciding whether this is continually safe for me to keep exposing myself to this other person. The reason why you do that is because the only way to know someone is to make yourself vulnerable, to, make, to, to, to open up yourself, to open up who you are. That's the only way for someone to know you and to allow them to see into who you really are. And so whenever we sense in someone something that is wrong with the way they relate to things, like if they don't do what is right, then we immediately begin to feel that this person is not safe because we don't know if they will always do what's right in relation to our relationship and the information that I may give to them. And so what you do then is you start to close off your openness because you're afraid that they're not going to handle what you give them properly. So when we don't live according to the truth, it, it causes us to shut down our relationships. Same thing happens with, with truthful speech. When we don't speak what is true, then we put up a barrier, we put on a mask, essentially. When we don't speak what is true, we put a, put a mask on our face. And that mask then, the, the other person is constantly having to, to, to try to see past that mask and see if, if what we're saying is actually who we are or if that's the mask that we have on. So we're putting a barrier between ourselves and the other person. And so that's why truth is so important. A commitment to truth is so important to relationships. Because as soon as we sense those things, we shut down, we start to shut down the relationship. But as long as we can keep that pathway of right and truth open, we can expand and grow the relationship. If you could, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Many of you know that this passage, especially verses 1 and 2, are verses that we often use in relation to nonconformity because it mentions not being conformed to this world in the first two verses here. I'm not going to look primarily at them, but I want to give you just a little bit of background to the context of these verses, but then also what happens immediately following these first two verses. We're going to be looking primarily at the latter part of, the, of this chapter. So Paul is writing, when he writes here to the Romans, he, he has a very systematic way of laying out Christian faith to the Roman church. And as he writes this, as he lays it out, he starts with, with where man is and, and he carries on up through the, the effect of, of faith, the effect of sin, the effect of faith, the human conscience, and, and how those things work together and how faith is, is interacting in that. 
I'm giving you a, I'm giving you a very brief overview. Comes up on into chapter 6, he talks about the new birth, he talks about what it means to become a Christian and then what it means to live as a Christian in chapter 8. And, and then he starts to talk about the relationship between God and people in the past. And he comes up here into, into chapter 11 and he starts talking about the, the olive branch. And he says that the, the Jewish olive branch was broken off. The natural olive branch was broken off. And you as a Gentile believer were grafted in. Oh, the depth of the wisdom, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has given to him, and, sh- and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's the end of chapter 11. And, but, but the key point that I want you to get is from this idea of being grafted in, that we are grafted in because of the mercy of God. And so God removed these um, natural olive branches because of unbelief. He grafted you in because of belief. And he did that because of his mercy to you. And then it says in, cha- in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, for this very reason that he grafted you in, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then the the purpose of that is in the next verse. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the purpose of your salvation. It's to prove the will of God to the world. And then he goes into, starting at verse 3, he goes into, and, and he does this actually for about the next three chapters, talking about what it looks like to live as a Christian and to demonstrate the will of God in the world. And immediately after he gives this, these first verses are from verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21, he talks about relationships. I'll begin reading at verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to every one who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affection to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay not evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is... 
is possible as much as depends on you. Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, he will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's enough material in this passage for a couple messages. But what I want to do is I want to go down through these verses really quickly. I want to point out a few things about relationships, and I want to try to capture the broader idea of relationships in these verses. Verses 3 to 5. Don't be proud in relation to other people. God has given specific value to each one. So God has given specific value to each person, and it's God's gift. And you should not be lifted up about what you have or what you don't have, because we can be lifted up about what we don't have in a display of false humility. Value people because God values people, and he has given to them something special. Verses 4 to 8. The value God gives to the individual is for the benefit of the whole. The things that make up the people that surround you are given to you as a gift to build up, to build you up, to build them up. You are to build them up. They are to build you up. And that all works together to build up the whole, to build up every, everyone. Verse 9, love is to be sincere or without hypocrisy. You're to give love in a straightforward, open manner. Something that is real. Verse 10. Show affection and give honor to others instead of seeking it for yourself. The way, verse 11. The way you conduct business should demonstrate how you serve the Lord so that others can see your commitment. Verse 12, our response to circumstances sets an example of where our trust is grounded. Verse 13, be quick to share both things and our homes, both the things we have and the homes that we have. Verse 14, someone has to take the first step in doing good. God says that should be you. Verse 15, engage yourself in the life of others. Verse 16, connect with those who have needs as one who also has needs. In verses 17 through 21, God wants evil to be ended. And he calls the Christian to be the one to initiate the change of cycle. Instead of returning evil for evil, which continues the cycle of evil, he calls you to do good, which breaks the cycle of evil and starts a cycle of good. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're talking about how proper relationships depend on a commitment to truth. So God is giving us here in these verses practical teaching on how to demonstrate true goodness in relationships, how to interact properly with people, 
God's speaking plainly to us in this passage about that. And we have to have a commitment to this, to have good relationships, so that we can really help people. But there's something else in this passage that we need to be aware of and we need to take into consideration. This passage doesn't give you direction about how to find the perfect people. It gives you direction how to be the kind of person that you should be. And that is the core of developing good relationships is being the right kind of person yourself. It's not changing the other person. It's being who you should be. So I want to move now to thinking a little bit more about love. In Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48, Jesus says this, You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemy, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice the be here. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So you're to be a child of God, and you're to... Be perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And Jesus makes a comparison here. He uses the publican. So what's the difference between the love of the publican and the love that Jesus is calling his disciples, his followers, to? Well, first of all, I want to think about the, the idea of the publican a little bit. The Jews had a lot of national pride. And they believed themselves to be the people of God and that they were a free nation. And, but the Romans had control over them politically. And the Romans um, charged them taxes or compelled them to pay taxes. The publicans were Jewish people who were collecting those taxes. So to the Jewish mind, the publican was a person who not only betrayed his country but also was dishonest because they often took more than they were supposed to take when they were taking their taxes. So he was not only someone who betrayed his country, but he was also someone who was dishonest. So I believe Jesus is using this as an illustration. He's not specifically condemning publicans as much as he is using this as an illustration that when people live wicked lives, they do still love those who love them. You see, people are capable of love. Made in God's image, people are capable of sacrificially loving other people. But Jesus is calling us to a higher standard even than that kind of love. He is calling us to a standard where we will love people who will not reciprocate that love who will not give that love back to us. So, what does it mean when you say, I love you? Does it mean that you make me happy and so I love you? Because you reciprocate 
love, because we have a good relationship, because there's a reciprocal relationship where I'm receiving something from you, that's why I love you. That's what I mean by I love you. For most of our world, that's what I love you means. Or does it mean I want your best? I have your best interests at heart. Because the world bases its meaning of love on the feelings that are generated by the relationship. And because of that, they've, the idea of love is very skewed in our culture. Because they don't have the proper basis for what love is. Godly love is focused on the well-being of others. So when we think about having a godly love, we're thinking about the well-being of others being at the root of the things that you do. So your commitment to the well-being of others is the depth to which you're able to love someone with godly love. So however deep, however strong your commitment to their well-being is, that's how much you'll be able to love them. See, God demonstrated this in Christ. Because he was willing to sacrifice himself for us while we were his enemies. That's godly love. There was no reciprocal love from us that was the reason why Christ died. Christ died while all of us were his enemies. And this is the call at the beginning of Romans 12. It's to sacrifice yourself for the will of God. And so, the opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. Because it's selfishness that holds us back from sacrificing ourselves. And to be able to do that, to be able to love someone in the way that's true, selfishness has to be broken. And that's why we need a Savior. Because self, our selfishness has to be broken. And now, the passages that I shared with you are largely in the context of brotherhood relationships. I don't particularly want to focus on that this morning. I want to say that those principles of relationship expand across all of our relationships. I want to focus on two other aspects of relationship that I think are very significant in our culture today, but also they're very significant to who we are as people. Their sexuality and marriage. And I chose these two partially because they're so emblematic of love, but also because our sexuality carries such a strong biological connection to who we are as people. And marriage, because it's so foundational to community and culture. So first of all, marriage and sexuality are designed by God. And that is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God lays out his creation, his design for us as human beings. 
But our sexuality is a very powerful part of who we are. And I can prove that to you because I take calls for Cam's billboard evangelism just a few hours a week. And over 75% of the calls that I receive bring up sexuality in some way. So that tells you what a powerful part of our lives this issue is. And God designed the, the intimacy of our sexuality to be within, between one man and one woman within marriage for life. When people call me with questions about sexuality, that's one of the bases where I start. This is how God designed us as people. And when that is nurtured and protected to follow God's design, it is a powerful bond that is part of the marriage union. And it's no accident that God designed our sexuality to be part of marriage. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it for reasons, probably reasons far beyond what we can know. But for some reasons that we can know. Don't read love into anything that gets ahead of God's plan or goes around God's plan. That's not love because it's not committed to the well-being of others. You see, self-indulgence outside of our created purpose is what that is. When we pursue desires outside of God's plan, that pursuit is for our self-indulgence. And it's outside of what we're created to be. And it degenerates who we are. It degenerates our character. It degenerates our sense of value in ourselves. So now we're talking about identity. We're talking about that when we indulge ourselves selfishly, not just in this area, in, in every area, when we When we indulge ourselves selfishly, we are breaking down who we are as human beings and how we think about ourselves. And that happens especially in this area because it's such a deep part of who we are, because it's such a significant part of our makeup. And so, as a result of that, we need to guard it carefully. Both married and unmarried people need to guard their sexuality carefully. And you see there's another part to it too, and that is that the development of these desires happen before we are married. They start to develop before we're married. And I believe God has design in that. And his design in that is so that we would learn to control our desires so that they're not used destructively in marriage. Now they can be used destructively outside of marriage, but they can also be used destructively inside of marriage. Because what are, as when, when people join in marriage union, it has to be joined from a commitment to the well-being of the other. And we need to live together in a way that is committed to the well-being of the other person. And so we will discipline our desires for the good of the other. 
And I would like to give you this encouragement that those who are currently struggling morally are not ready for marriage. And it goes beyond just this aspect of our morals. We need to be self-disciplined people when we enter marriage because marriage is the foundation of our community, our culture, and our heritage, and our future. And if our marriages are not God-honoring marriages, it will be destructive to our communities. And our positional marriage goes way, way deeper than no divorce. It includes no divorce, but it goes way deeper than that. But the no divorce thing indicates something. It indicates the foundation of what true marriage is made of and its commitment. Now, there's this man that was a basketball star when I was young. His name was Dennis Rodman. And uh, he had, I don't know, have y'all seen the confetti cake probably? It's white with the little colored sprinkles in it. I don't know, I think I'm using the right word there. But anyway, so he had his hair in the last couple years that he played basketball, he had his hair dyed like that. It was dyed white with a whole bunch of these little colored sprinkles in it. Anyway, he was, a pretty, he was pretty significant because he played with Michael Jordan in the last couple years of his career, and they broke a bunch of records together. Anyway, so I knew about this when I was young. And uh, I remember reading in the Reader's Digest, this man had a whole string of marriages. And I remember reading kind of this comic thing in the Reader's Digest about different celebrities and about how they what their marriage proposals were and I remember his specifically it's the only one I remember it said his marriage proposal was this you're the one I want to spend the rest of my week with what is our commitment the reason couples live together without getting married is because they don't love each other enough they're not committed enough to each other to give themselves completely to the relationship for life. The reason why couples divorce is because they don't love each other enough. They're not willing to hang on despite the difficulties, despite the things that come down the road that are hard to deal with. They don't love each other enough to be committed for the rest of life. Maybe I'll remind you at this point that a good relationship isn't built by finding the perfect person. It's by being the person that you ought to be. And that doesn't solve all the problems in the world because evil still exists and people will still make evil choices. But the greatest good that you can do is be the person that you should be. One of the things that we want more than anything else, and this is because we're made in God's image, and God made us to know Him. And... As we're made in His image, we also want to know and to be known. And deep down inside, we long to be known. And after someone knows who we are, who we really are inside, they will still love us. Because we're afraid, because of our inconsistencies and because of our failures, we're afraid that if we really show people who we are, that after we show them who they are, they will reject us. And complete commitment to God establishes 
complete commitment in marriage. And because the world doesn't have complete commitment to God, it doesn't have a foundation for complete commitment in marriage. Now you could say, well, there's people that are committed to marriage for life. And that's true. But as a whole, our society is not. Now those people may have some foundation that they're using to commit themselves for life. In fact, a, a prominent atheist said that he's been married to his wife for 40 or so years, and he said, and I don't even know why. But he believes that it's the morally right thing to do to stay married to his wife, and he doesn't know why that is, but he has that commitment. That's another that's another topic, another point. But one of the things that I want you to think about is that the final judgment will be made as a result of knowing or not knowing. When Jesus said to, the, to, the, to those on his left, depart from me, he says, I never knew you. He didn't know who they were. The essence of life is about knowing God. John 17, 3. And the essence of relationship Outside of that, or, or in our human relationships, is learning to know one another. And life commitment in marriage creates an atmosphere where we are able to know that regardless of who I am, my wife is committed to me for the rest of my life. And so I can open myself up in the relationship, and we're going to still be together after I show her that I'm not perfect. After she sees that I'm not perfect, she's still going to love me and we're going to go on in our relationship. And so it, it creates an atmosphere where we can actually learn to know each other and then ultimately learn to love each other more and more deeply. Because in the, in the depth of knowing is the depth of love. And so as we deepen the knowing, we also deepen the love that we have for each other. And then it creates an atmosphere where love can flourish and where our children can understand that mom and dad have a commitment to each other's well-being and to our well-being. And so now you're starting to project into the next generation because of your commitment. And so love can flourish. There's a couple of things that are key. One of them is unreserved faith. And that's why I started out by asking you if you believe that following this book leads you to the fullest life possible. Because God's plan is not a fix-at-this-minute plan. God's plan is a long-term plan. God's plan is an eternity plan. And you commit to His plan without seeing the results. And then as you live that commitment out by doing what He asks you to do, the results come down the road. And that's faith. When you believe something's going to happen, if you do it, that's what faith is. 
I can tell you from my own experience that God's plan can heal relationships. Praise the Lord. God can redeem relationships. I believe that with all of my heart. I'm committed to taking God's way regardless in my relationships. And I choose to restrict my life to this book, to the truth of this book, because I believe that that restriction is beneficial to the future good of those I love. There's something else that is vital. It's unreserved faith, but it's also part of that passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it talks about you will be witnesses. Jesus says you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be witnesses. You see, behind every action is a spirit. There is something that is driving the spirit of what you do. And I'll try to illustrate it like this. Do you want to heap coals of fire on someone's head so that they will feel the burn? Or do you want to do what's right and show them God's love so that it will convict their heart to also follow the right way? So you have their well-being in, in mind, or do you do the things that you do because you want to bonk them on the head and show them how it ought to be done? And there's a spirit behind those two, the difference in those two. And the spirit is critical to the way that we live. The spirit of God needs to be working in our hearts as we do what God asks us to do. And that's why being is so important. Because it's through the Spirit of God transforming us that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Romans chapter 8. It needs to be operational in our day-to-day -day interactions. Do you believe that following this book is not just what you have to do, but it is the best life possible. Regardless of what you suffer, regardless of what you face, regardless of what life brings, following this book is the best life possible. You see, it's become abundantly clear to me in the past couple years in interacting with people who are not from Mennonite background, that the value, we have a tremendous value in our heritage of biblical obedience. Now, I am not saying that the heritage is what makes it valuable. The biblical obedience is what makes our heritage valuable. That doesn't mean that we disregard our heritage. In fact, in the young men's class, we talked about this just a little bit this morning. There are values that come out of the things that we do that are critical to our well-being as humans. And before we disregard anything from the past, we better study carefully what the Word of God says and align ourselves with the truth. 
Separation cuts through every aspect of life. And I hope you were encouraged this morning to see the value in the fact that we look at love, marriage, that we look at life differently than the world around us. And that is valuable. It's not just that we're different people, but rather that it is valuable to our lives and brings tremendous value to our families. Teach me to love thee as thine angels love, one holy passion filling all my frame, the baptism of the heaven-descended dove, my heart an altar, and thy love the flame. Amen. Shall we have a song?